So I'm going to turn on gallery view. Everybody, please help me drown the silence out. The gallery view is on. Um, let's assume that everybody's watching at home. Everybody give a wave to all your friends and family. Hi, how are you doing? It's very good Hi, to friends. see you all. I apologize for the technical difficulty. Um, I was signed in on my uh, my account that I only use to stream Fortnite. So it was just getting mixed up with my work account. Um, no Fortnite tonight, just literary readings. So um, I'm going to turn off the gallery view so you can all do another wave. And um, we will be hearing from all these people very shortly because I am done uh, with the talkie talkie. So um, it's uh, very good to see everybody. Thank you for watching. My name is Jason Norman. I am the uh, Programs and Events Coordinator at the Writers Guild of Alberta. And um, this is part two of our uh, virtual readings with the finalists for the Alberta Literary Awards. Uh, I just wanted to acknowledge before we move on further that uh, this, the uh, Writers Guild of Alberta offices are, um, are on Treaty 6 territory in, uh, in Edmonton. And also uh, we have um, offices in Edmonton too, on, or on, in Calgary too, on uh, Treaty territory as well. Um, thank you everybody for watching. Um, we have um, readers coming up that are all finalists for either the Alberta Literary Awards or the City of Calgary, W.O. Mitchell, uh, Mitchell City of Calgary Book Prize. And um, the, the uh, Alberta Literary Awards will be presented on um, June 9th. Uh, and on this very YouTube channel right here, we'll have a video presentation for you. If you did see what we did last year, it'll be a little bit like that. We have a couple different things that we're going to that we're going to try out. So um, without further ado, let's get to our first reader. His name is Omar. Writer and filmmaker Omar Mualam has worked for The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, CBC, and Wired. Over the course of his 15-year media career, he's edited magazines, ghostwritten best-selling memoirs, hosted several podcasts, and created and co-created a documentary about mental health in the oil patch. He recently founded Pandemic University, a virtual school in support of writers affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we and will publish a travelogue titled Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas with Simon & Schuster in Fall 2021. Um, and Omar, your short piece is entitled January 8th, I believe. And it January is- January 2020. January 8th, 2020, and it is um, a finalist for the James H. Gray Award for Short Nonfiction. So take it away, Omar. Thanks for that introduction, uh, Jason, and thanks for that uh, thumbs up from Jenny, uh, my former teacher at, at McEwen uh, there. Thanks, thumbs up to you too, Jenny. It's nice to, to be in this, uh, in this group with you and everyone else. Um, so the story that is nominated is called January 8, 2020, um, which isn't much of a headline, uh, but of course that is, uh, uh, that's a date that will kind of, you know, sit in, um, <clears throat> that will, you know, forever be frozen in memory for uh, hundreds and, and, uh, and thousands of people in the world. And those are um, people who were affected by the, um, the Iranian plane uh, crash um, tragedy on that day. 
So um, I'll give you the lead up to the excerpt that I'm going to read. Um, Stephen Sandro from Edify came to me and asked me if I wanted to write about this tragedy. And I said, of course I did. Um, but that's about as much direction as I had. And he he let me choose the way that I want to write about it. And, um, you know, there was 176 people on board, I believe, who, who died. And each one of them could have been a story within themselves. And to try to wrap your head around uh, the immense... Uh, loss of that uh, of that tragedy, it would take uh, a book. Um, <clears throat> so I decided that I would just profile one victim, and the person that I chose was Elnaz uh, Nabiyi. Um, she is uh, she was an Edmontonian. She was a PhD student um, at uh, University of Alberta, and she was there along with her husband uh, Javed Soleimani uh, Mimandi. <clears throat> and um, you know they they ended up in Edmonton. They ended up in Edmonton the way that, you know, Iranian people end up all over the world, which is they sort of, um, you know, they 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 reach the, the limits of their potential in that in that country. And they feel like they have to leave um, in order to realize the fullness of their potential. And Elnaz was a, was a brilliant woman. She was at the top of her Ph.D. program in business, um, doing uh, specializing in a project in AI that had uh, major implications for um, the health system here in, in Edmonton, possibly uh, Canada. She was also very spiritual. She was um, willing to leave everything to God and just go with the flow. Whereas Javed was also really smart, but he was the first to admit that he didn't have the sort of natural talents of Elnaz. And uh, he was very empirically minded, but kind of a type A planner. He even had uh, their kids' names picked out, Raha, which means free in Persian for a girl, and Omid, uh, which means hope for a boy. <clears throat> so Javed was incredibly generous with the interviews and the research. He shared diaries, texts, messages, poetry, everything needed to not just string together the sequence of events leading to her death and the aftermath of the tragedy, but also to try to tell their love story as well. Now, the excerpt I'm reading, though, is going to kind of, it's the last section, and um, it's where I sort of break away from Elnaz's Javits story briefly to try to give a fuller picture of what was truly lost on January 8th. So here we go. <clears throat> PS752 is an unprecedented tragedy. There's never been another instance of domestic military forces downing a civilian airliner. Canada's closest parallel was the 1985 Air India bombing, which at least could be processed in Canadian courts. And even then, it took 25 years for a full inquiry. When I asked Javid whether he's willing to wait that long for the truth, he doesn't hesitate. I am ready for it, he says. Maybe one year, two years, three years, four years, 10 years, but I'm ready for it. Because personally, I left my everything there. So I'm ready for a long and difficult time. <clears throat> a complete and transparent investigation, however improbable, is at least possible. A complete picture of what was lost on January 8th can only be imagined. Even if we account for the grief of every loved one, friend, colleague, and student they ever touched, we've barely begun to step into the impact crater. Elnaz Nabiyi was but one of 176 who died aboard PS752. The majority of the passengers, 138 in all, were bound for Canada. So it's not just a question of whom they, the victims' families, lost, but whom we lost, and what the world lost, and what Iran has been losing for generations. Iran is a cradle for art and science, 
a bedrock for modern engineering. It's a nation where children memorize Rumi alongside times tables, and virtually everyone is a lay poet. So consider that. Now consider that PS752 passengers were from a demographic that Western nations deemed qualified to leave what is one of the most vilified societies in spite of its sophistication. They were the pride of the people. Oh, I should have mentioned earlier, Elnaz's name, Elnaz, literally translates to pride of the people. They were the pride of the people. Firuz Madani and Nasser Purshaban Oshibi, two of Iran's leading physicians who'd resettled in North Vancouver, gone. University of Alberta engineering professors Pedra Musavi and Mojgam Danishmand, gone. Immunologist Furaj Khadam, solar scientist Zara Najibi, gynecologist Shikufi Shupan Najid, gone. Over 30 PhDs and PhD candidates from Canada alone vanished that morning. Future climate, future climate change scientists, electrochemistry researchers, biomedical engineers, mathematics professors, AI innovators, gone. And still we have not tallied the loss. 29 children died on PS752. What would they have accomplished with the advantages their children or their parents earned for them? Elnaz sat next to one of them, three-year-old Juwan Rahimi, his future now as unknowable as hers. The entire Rahimi family was lost, a computer engineering professor, an artist, their firstborn child, and their unborn child, gone, and still, and still. Elnaz used to tell her husband that the greatest contribution to humanity would be raising free-thinking children. There's a part of him that still thinks it's not too late, a sense that Elnaz could reappear at any moment, even there in the park where we were sitting. It's the same part of him that still analyzes her final Instagram posts for clues, checks the last text he sent her for a read receipt, and keeps her clothes perfectly folded in their drawers. The notion tussles with his empirical mind, but he can't suppress it anymore than he can his grief for intangible things. Honestly, he says, I really regret that there's no children from her. He says this struggling to get the words out. People with the best intentions sometimes tell him that he's fortunate they didn't have children that he'd now have to bring up alone. They don't see the fullness of his grief that is not for one life, but two or three, Raha and Omid, free and hope, not names, but possibilities, gone. Nothing remains from her, he says. Her eyes, her kindness, her smarts. I have nothing in my hands. I just have her photos on the wall. That and the anticipation of a great miracle. Elnaz was always the more spiritual of the two, but behind her piety was inquiry, a search for brightness, not righteousness, and a courage for, to probe dogma, to an, and a courage to probe dogma for answers to life's biggest questions. In her absence, Javid has embraced her core belief that a higher truth exists waiting for discovery. Thank you. Thank you, Omar. That was great. Um, we're going to move right on to our next reader, Natalie Meisner. Natalie Meisner is an award-winning playwright multi-genre author from the South Shore of Nova Scotia. She is, she is also the current Poet Laureate of Calgary. Her work often deploys the power of comedy for social change. 
Batty One Shoe from Frontenac is a collection of odes to renegade women who fight the powers that be with laughter. Legislating Love, the Everett Clippert story, University of Calgary Press, illuminates the life, the last Canadian to be jailed for, homos for homosexuality. Um, her play Boom Baby, about young maritimers working in the oil patch, won both the Canadian National and the Alberta Playwriting Award. Her play Speed Dating for Sperm Donors, Playwrights Canada Press, nonfiction book, Double Pregnant, Two Lesbians Make a Baby, Fernwood, and children's book, My Mommy, My Mama, My Brother, and Me from Nimbus are all based on the true story of a two-mom biracial family-finding community. Meisner is a wife and mom to two great boys and a full professor in the Department of English at Mount Royal University, where she works in the areas of creative writing, drama, and gender sexuality studies. And Natalie, you are nominated. It could be in almost any category after I read all that. But you were nominated in the Children's Literature Picture Book category, the R. Ross Annette Award uh, for My Mommy. Say it again. My mommy, my mama, my brother, and me. I'll let you take it away. Thanks so much, Jason, for that. So, uh, yes, bringing a couple of the things together, I guess. Um, one thing I wanted to do with this book is to make, we are a biracial two-mom family. And when I started reading children's books to my own sons, I just noticed that there were a couple great classics in this field, you know, that had uh, this kind of inclusivity. But I thought, Maybe there was a little bit of room in the field for another work. Um, and so this is inspired, yeah, by our walks that we have outside where we try to look at a lot of nature. And I'm just gonna give it a little bit of a rip for you. And it's illustrated by the wonderful Matilda Sankmars, um, who does these whimsical and gorgeous paintings inside. So the, what I wanted was something that was beautiful, um, eye-catching for children, but also fun for adults to read. Um, so this is my mommy, my mama, my brother and me. My home is a town surrounded by sea. The bank, school, post office, my family and me. That house is ours, the last one by the dock. Come on in for a visit, don't bother to knock. We're used to the fog, here it's thick like pea soup. If you like, you can taste it. I'll get you a scoop. Then all of a sudden, the sun, it appears, and soon we'll have sand from our toes to our ears. Our town has a beach just up over the hill. And whenever we go, we bring buckets to fill. The beach waits for us with waves like green glass. We run on the sand and we hide in long grass. And these are the things that we find by the sea my mommy, my mama, my brother, and me. I just loved like the details she got on these. It might be kind of hard to see, but they're like little paintings. They're just so lovely. Um, we can't keep them all. So each day we choose one thing to cherish, the, the rest we let loose. See the fishermen there hauling their nets. They've caught something tasty for dinner, I bet. Out in the water are colorful floats, stripes, dots, and patterns for every boat. They each have their own so they don't get confused about which one is what one and whose trap is whose. And these are the things we find by the sea. My mommy, my mama, my brother and me. Come over here quick and see what I found. 
It's hard black and shiny on top, smooth and round. The tip is sharp and pointy and it feels just like leather, yet dry to the touch and light as a feather. Is it a plant, a seaweed of some kind? It doesn't feel hollow. Is there something inside? Here comes our neighbor, Captain Enslow. Let's take it to him and see if he knows. This here's what they call a mermaid's purse. Inside, there's an egg of a shark, like a nurse, a shark nose, a dusky, a tiger, or maybe. It's a stingray, if you look inside. And these are the things we find by the sea. My mommy, my mama, my brother and me. Miss Poole paints a picture each and every day on the beach and the sea, yet they're never quite the same. She walks the whole shoreline, no matter the weather, with her little dog boots, they're always together. Today she arrives with a gift in her hand and it glows like the fire as she brushes off sand. I found something special, says Miss Poole. Something you don't find out here is a rule. Think of the bonfire this glass melted in. Think how it hardened from heat and was sanded again to a smooth misty finish by each grain of sand as it rolled in the waves and the tide came in. We ask if she wants it. She smiles and says, no, you keep it. I paint it. Come on, Boots, let's go. And these are the things that we find by the sea. My mommy, my mama, my brother and me. And then I'm just gonna skip a couple little pages. They find some more things. They go to the beach, they eat some lunch on a rock. Um, oh yeah, then we'll pick it back up with the seagulls. Mama points out to sea as the boats come in. See how they're followed by the fisherman's friend. The parts of the fish we can't eat go to them. The gulls make it their job to clean up the sea. This keeps the beach fine for you and for me. Something else about seagulls that's really unique. They're the only creatures who can drink the sea. The salt doesn't hurt them. It comes out through their beak. And these are the things we find by the sea. My mommy, my mama, my brother and me. Now comes the hardest part of a day by the sea. Mama hugs us and asks us, my brother and me, all of your treasures and all of your bounty. What's the thing that you most want to keep? Is it a long white feather, a shell from the deep, rare beach glass, or, or uni from the sea? My brother and I sit down in the sun because when you're thinking, two heads are better than one. This day's been astounding. Amazing, first rate, just top-notch and wonderful, but what made it that way? It wasn't the things that we found on the ground. It was the people we talked to. It was the friends that we found. And so we run to our moms and we say, now we know just what it is that we wanna take home. Not the beach glass or the shells or the salty sea foam. It's the neighbors we spoke with who shared what they know. And these are the friends that we found by the sea. My mommy, my mama, my brother and me. And then it ends with this just kind of tableau, which is like a big kitchen party. So um, yeah, that's it. Thank you, everybody. Really happy to, to read alongside you all. Thanks, Natalie. That was great. And then they have lunch on a rock. That's my favorite part. <laughs> I'm hungry already. OK, we're going to move on to our next reader. Uh, Bertrand Bickersteth. Born in Sierra Leone, Bertrand Bickersteth grew up in Edmonton, Calgary, and Olds, Alberta. 
After an English degree at UBC, Bertrand continued studying in the UK and later taught in the US, later taught in the US. A return to Alberta provided him with new insights on Black identity, and most of his writing has been committed to these perspectives ever since. His poetry has appeared in several publications, including most recently, The Antigonish Review, Cosmonauts Avenue, and The Fieldstone Review. He has also been published in The Great Black North and the forthcoming anthology, The Black Prairie Archives. In 2018, he was longlisted for the CBC Poetry Prize. He lives in Calgary, teaches at Olds College, and writes everywhere. And Bertrand, you are nominated this year for the uh, Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry and also the W.O. Mitchell City of Calgary Book Prize. So if you're there, I'm here. You can come read some more for us. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction, Jason. I really appreciate it. A uh, little bit uh, hard to follow by Natalie Meisner in that uh, wonderful text, which is so full of positive energy and much-needed perspectives as well. Um, not to mention poetry, I have to say. I don't know if you folks noticed, but there was a lot of rhyming going on in that text. So I am going to try to follow that up with some more poetry, but my poetry is uh, not of the... Um, uh, child-friendly, well, child-friendly is maybe the wrong way to put it. Uh, we get a little bit darker in my poetry. Uh, as Jason pointed out in my introduction, much of my writing has to do with figuring out uh, where Blackness fits into the uh, Albertan landscape and therefore my own identity. Uh, when you grow up a person of color in this part of the world, you are meant to feel like you can't belong and that you're not a full citizen in the way that white people are. Uh, and you don't see examples of yourself. You don't see yourself represented in the histories. You don't see yourself in the arts. Uh, and so uh, quite frankly, there were times in my life, particularly in my teen years, where I wasn't sure that I did exist, honestly. Um, maybe from 12 to 23. Yeah, there was uh, that period. Uh, but of course I do exist. And um, my writing ever since has been an effort to try to explore exactly that uh, question. So I'm gonna read to you a few poems from uh, my collection, uh, The Response of Weeds. And um, in, this, um, uh, in this collection, I'm gonna try to uh, pull out the uh, Alberta-specific poems for you guys. Uh, the first one, I feel very lucky reading poetry, by the way, because uh, I get to stop and talk very often as opposed to you folks who've got like your long narratives that you have to read. Uh, but this first one is um, called The Negro Speaks of Alberta. And this is a poem that is uh, inspired by Langston Hughes, a great African-American poet who's associated with the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, he has this poem called um, uh, Negro Speaks of Rivers. And I based my poem on uh, partially on that. Uh, so this is called The Negro Speaks of Alberta. Once he stood on the banks of the bow near the confluence of the old man, watching for the common effluence of the South Saskatchewan, the Red Deer, the Saskatchewan, and so on and on and on. I know these rivers that flow past me. I've peered over their banks and I know you do not see me. Once he stood on the banks of this twisted river, released a gleaming arc of relief into its heart. For an untroubled while, their waters flowed together and emptied 
together out of a distant, unsuspecting mouth. I know these rivers that flow through me. I've peered into their hearts and still you do not see me. That was The Negro Speaks of Alberta. Uh, the next poem I'm going to uh, read for you has a uh, trigger warning in it. I just have to warn you, there's some serious racist language in this poem. Um, I use the N word in this poem, and um, I just wanna point out uh, that I don't use this word lightly, and I wrestle every time that I use it in my poetry, but uh, such is poetry. Uh, it's that language that is always on the knife's edge, and yeah, sometimes it actually does hurt. So uh, be warned, if uh, you don't like that kind of language, you might want to mute things now. This is called What We Used to Call It. And that's not all. Have you seen this one, this place, this prairie's face? Look at its wide open spaces, its Chinook arched above unclaimed coolies, its snow-covered skin. Ice white riddled carapace, dotted dirt yellow, its singular snow owls, sentinels on unexpected telephone poles. And that there is Nigger John's Creek, but we don't call it that anymore. And this here is the end of the Bar U Trail. And this and and this here is the shadow of stony mountains cutting across unforgiving winter ground. And this here is the ground itself, now dead to the drip of wheat sounding in its summer soul and the braids of oil coursing through its golden veins. And this vein, yeah, and, and that's not all. That there is where I, I'm pretty sure, would belong if I only knew what that there is called. I know what we used to call it. That's what we used to call it. I'm gonna skip ahead here now to uh, about the middle of the collection. This is a poem about a very famous guy who has an even famous alter ego. Um, it's called Clark Kent on the Prairies. And how about that, eh? After all, he grew up here too or somewhere else like here. Cornfields were his playgrounds. The echoes of spaciousness were bandied about by minute wildlife in his evening experience. Sure, he could see for miles in any direction. And weren't these things our familiar too? Remember kryptonite, the chronic weakness, a chunk of the past recast as the recurring question of home. And I have time for just one final poem for you folks here. Again, going back to my Alberta theme, this one is called Accidental Agriculture. The bruising beginning, face rubbed in Alberta's finest, orthic dark brown churnism, where wheat flourishes and barley wails. After the fight, we congregate in the principal's office, punishments meted out to him, the aggressor, who impugned my face against the ground because its darkness inspired a simile. Part-time prairie poet he was. And 
punishments meted out to me, the victim, so-called. Well, why did you fight back? Why do you people always fight? Now I have to punish you, too. The principal glares at me, his eyes a shock of literal blue. Outside, on my way home, I pondered the view from the top of a rare hill, and in different fields spilled with dandelions was splayed out below. This accidental agriculture will be swallowed by an instantaneous city, its inevitability, its ignorance. I saw the whole against the horizon. A nine-year-old, a timeless landscape, a flatness ensuing. My tender head still throbbing from the blunt encounter, I reached with a quiet fist to rub at the soreness swelling around my eyes. Well, why did you fight back? When the black child is six years old in Harlem, he suddenly sees everything he has been before and all that was sown before him and how it has been sown before him. And this, my muse, James Baldwin, muses, is the fundamental difference between any child growing anywhere in Alberta and the child that must see things through black eyes. Thank you very much, folks. Congrats to everyone and good luck. Thank you so much, Bertrand. That was great. And uh, our next reader is Gabe Calderon. Gabe Calderon is Nishmani Dewag and Ikwoyo, Two-Spirit, Transgender, Queer, and Intersex, Mi'kmaq, Ilnu, Algonquin, Omamewinini, Scottish, and French-Canadian, thriving with disabilities and neurodivergence. They currently live in Treaty 6's Amiskwachi Waskaikan, and as an author, poet, mixed media act, artist, activist, and educator. Gabe has achieved several short story awards, namely the Indigenous Arts and Stories in conjunction with the Governor General's Awards in 2019, and is the runner-up for the Canadian Festival of Spoken Word 2019, uh, most notably known as the author of Anwani An Kajigan in the anthology Love After the End, shortlisted for the Lamba, uh, 2021, pu published by Arsenal Pulp Press. And that story is also a uh, finalist for the Howard O'Hagan Award for Short Story. Um, Gabe, are you there? Hi, Timmy Wesh. Thanks so much, Jason. Kwe kakina, Gabe Harakwewino Nishnikas, Nimanoya, Omewinini, Anishinaabe, Aki, and Donjiba. So hi everyone, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm honored to be in the company of such incredible writers. Um, I'm author, I'm really honored by this nomination. Um, so the piece that I want to share with you all tonight is um, called Anwenikajigun, and um, it's a word in Omenwininimowen, which is the language of the Algonquin people, um, one of the 
uh, many different uh, nations that are um, considered Anishinaabe. And essentially what that word translates to is to write down or to record something uh, very specifically for the purpose of uh, memorizing it and keeping it close to your heart. And um, for a very long time, we have, as Indigenous people, uh, we have different roles that we hold very close. Um, and so for us as Algonquin people, being a storyteller is something that is very sacred. It's considered a life role that you take on. Um, and so this character, Haragwewenu, that literally translates to storyteller um, in Mi'kmaq. And so I created uh, a world, a post-apocalyptic world, where in order for the people to survive, they have to rely upon their traditional indigenous teachings. They have to rely upon the sacred roles that creator um, set out for them before they were even born. Uh, growing up, there was no indigenous heroes. There were no two-spirit heroes. Um, people that were both LGBTQ and indigenous did not get to be even uh, in the stories to begin with, much less be those heroes that save these worlds. Um, and so I am writing um, heroes for people that have never seen themselves reflected in their stories before. <clears throat> so this is uh, Um And just so folks know, this is uh, the first three chapters of uh, my debut novel, uh, which will hopefully be picked up for publishing soon. Um, which will take this short story and, and just very broaden um, that uh, story into like a full uh, science fiction novel. So it's super exciting. Um, so here is uh, the beginning of this uh, story. The elders had told her stories about the world that was, stories about a mother who was earth, stories about how the ones in power killed her, Others said the stories were lies. The world was always gray and concrete, steel and sorrow. They were born into it. So were their children. The only reason elders told stories was in order for the memory markings to appear. No one in the village knew why. However, when someone shared a story and you truly listened, listened with all your heart, by the end, Strange red markings would appear on your skin, like tiny scratches that fell into a pattern no one could discern. When you touched one, words would appear in your head and you would repeat the story back verbatim as if you were the one who shared it in the first place. No one knew why only the people in the village had the markings or where they came from or what they were for, but the people in power did. Therefore, one day, on the most special day, the day when the young ones go through their adulthood ritual and hear the creation story to receive their first markings, the ones in power attacked. They left no one alive, or so they believed. Haragwewino awoke startled, her breath coming in short gasps and sweat beating her brow. She quietly got up from her pallet on the floor so as to not disturb the beds of the resident. Haragwewino sat in the adjacent room, on the edge of the wall, where there was a hole in it big enough to fit her comfortably. The air was stiff and hot, no wind from the open wall to soothe her blistering skin. The sky was an orange glow 
with a dull light emanating from the center. The sky was always orange. Sometimes the dull light would be brighter, other times gone completely. Regardless, it was always hard to see. She looked down at her arm, skin bronzed and grimy, and softly rubbed the markings there. They were fresh from a merchant telling her about a story his grandfather had passed to him. Gently, she felt fingers touch her nape, and Belle's gentle voice murmured in her ear, when did those marks happen? This morning, Belle's strong hands moved her body around to face their owner. Hadagwewinu looked into warm, immeasurably deep eyes and smooth, dark lips shaped into a quiet smile. Do you want to hear the story? Hadagwewinu asked. A nod. Belle's hand grasped hers, fingers calloused from fighting that tugged her away from the harsh sky and the arid air back to the protection of their little pallet nest. Your turn, Hadagwewinu whispered, holding her arm out. Belle looked at her solemnly before turning their gaze to the fresh markings with true intent. Those scarred fingers gently pressed on them, pulling into the touch the need to listen and learn. The markings triggered, sending a cold snap into Haragoywinu's head. Everything was silent until suddenly word after word barraged her senses. She took a deep breath and opened her mouth. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. She sat under the metal overhang near the outskirts of the village. It was her little place, only those closest to her knew it. She fiddled with the hem of her ribbon shirt. The frayed edges wrecked wonders to the nerve endings under her fingernails. Footsteps approached as Haragwewinu looked up and saw her mother coming closer. Kwe, she said as her mother sat next to her. Kwe, her mother replied. They both sat silently for a bit, staring out into the brown and dappled gray hills around them. The boys made fun of Kokomis's shirt. They said I'm a girl and girls shouldn't wear men's clothes. They said I'm wrong. Her mother crooned. She gently grasped her face. When you were born, your Kokomis held you in his arms and he looked at me with tears running down his face because he had been waiting his whole life for another Ikhwewak like him. And there you were. I gave birth to you, and I was never more grateful for anything else in my life. You are a gift, Winu, and people are often jealous of gifts that are not for them. I'll stop there. Tumiwech, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Gabe. Our next reader is, where did my thing go? Kat, Kat Cameron. Kat Cameron is the author of two collections of poetry, Ghosts Still Linger from the University of Alberta Press and Strange Labyrinth. Her collection of short stories, The Eater of Dreams was shortlisted for the 2020 Danuta Gleed Literary Award. She lives in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory and teaches writing at Concordia, Concordia University of Edmonton. And Ghost Still Linger is um, a finalist along with Bertrand for the Stephen G. Stephenson um, Award for Poetry. And if Kat is there. I'm here. Take it away, Kat. Okay, thank you, Jason. 
And also thank you to the jurors at the Writers Guild of Alberta for this honor. And I'm delighted to be reading with all these fantastic writers tonight, some very moving work. So I'm going to read from uh, my book of poetry, Ghosts Still Linger. And there are three sections in the book. So I'll read one poem from each section. And the first section is primarily elegies. And so this poem is for John Mann, uh, the lead singer from Spirit of the West. And the poem is remembering a day at the Edmonton Folk Festival. Lament for John Mann. His words are gone, eaten by Alzheimer's. Remember running from stage to stage? Hula girls swirling, dust on our feet, dragonflies darting. The way he danced, flailing, joyous. Canada mourns for one bard sinking down into darkness, scalp tickets in Kingston. But I am grieving the last Commodore concert when he read his words from an iPad screen. Remember dancing to the beat of the Boran? His words are gone, but John Mann dances. The middle section of the book is a series of poems uh, documenting both beauty and loss in the Alberta landscape. And my great great grandparents settled in the Red Deer area in 1891. So at that time they took a train to Calgary and then they had to travel by wagon up the Old North Trail. And so Old North Trail is a recreation of that journey that they took. Old North Trail. I will drive now to Innisfil and stay at the Super 8 Motel where old men smoke darts dispensed from vintage vending machines in the stagecoach saloon paneled in knotty pine. And the road crews swill big rock beer and dream of their wives in double wide trailers set in yards overgrown with lilacs and carragana. I will drive up the old North Trail the same trail my great-great-grandparents followed in 1891. That spring, the Red Deer River flooded. The men missed the ford and foundered. A horse drowned, and a loaded wagon floated downstream with a young man clinging to his possessions. The silted river flows into the present, and at the Innisfil Rodeo, farmers decked out in check shirts, cowboy hats, and jeans sit in the bleachers forecasting the barometer in Swedish, French, English, and German. And their kids perch on the rails and pet the horses. And the parking lot behind the grounds is crammed with millions of dollars in fifth wheels and RVs from cattle and oil in God's country. And the third section was inspired by a trip that I took to Wyoming with my husband. And we went to the Cody Museum in Wyoming and I saw some of Annie Oakley's um, artifacts. I saw her gun and her hat and also these glass balls that were about the size of a, a couple of fists. And these were glass balls, they were hollow and they'd be filled with sawdust and feathers 
and then they'd be fired up when she performed and she would shoot them. And when she shot them, they would rain feathers and sawdust on the crowds that were watching her perform. So the Old West especially is, is often associated with men, but the woman I write about carved out their own places. And one of those is Annie Oakley. Glass targets in a museum case. They always put woman behind glass. Annie smashed hundreds, amber or cobalt blue, mold blown by Agnew and Brown, exploding in a shower of feathers and sawdust that coated the crowds below. In a shooting contest, she beat Frank Butler by one shot to win a hundred dollar bet. But Annie, get your gun, changes the story. She loses. Annie, keep breaking those spheres above our heads. Targets clear as glass. No tricks, no lies. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kat. Our next reader is Ellen Chorley. Ellen Chorley is an Edmonton-based playwright, producer, performer, and arts educator. She is the current festival director of Next Fest, Edmonton's annual emerging arts festival. Ellen also teaches playwriting and acting at the Foot Theatre School for ages 8 to 18. She is thrilled by this nomination. Uh, thank you so, oh, thank you. You're welcome. She says thank you at the end of her bio. Um, Ellen. Hi, everyone. My name is Ellen Chorley, and I am the playwright of Everybody's Loves Robbie, which was shortlisted for the Gwen Ferris Ringwood Award for Drama. Uh, this play was produced by, here in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory um, last uh, January, January 2020, which was very, very, very cold, but we managed to have audiences come just before COVID started, so we were very lucky to have the play produced in 2020. Um, I'm just going to be reading um, a short scene from the play. Um, the play is a queer and questioning love letter to arts education uh, and the theater community here in Edmonton. The two characters, Chloe and Robbie, have met in high school. Uh, they're in gym together and they're eagerly awaiting January so they can start their school's new theater arts program. And just before I read, uh, if you're not a theater person or you don't go to see theater or you didn't grow up going to arts, um, arts high school, a revolve is a piece of very expensive flooring that is put on a stage so that um, when you put the set on top of it, the set can turn around and it's very, very expensive. And it's and really famously used in La Miserable. They have this two-story revolve that turns around and becomes the barricade and that kind of stuff. This is Everybody Loves Robbie. Scene three. Everybody loves the worst fine arts program in the city. Theater arts was pushed to second semester of grade 10 because Henday still hadn't come up with the classroom for us. The Anthony Henday Athletics Department was doing this, using the stage for storage and storage couldn't be moved. So yeah, not a sports focused school, but totally a sports focused school. By the time January of grade 10 rolls around, the administration has found a fine arts solution. They give us a portable. As in, a semi-truck drives onto the field and drops a standalone classroom from the 1970s. The glass is missing out of two windows and replaced by particle board. At least two or three fluorescent light bulbs are burnt out 
and they never get replaced. They never get replaced for the two and a half years we were there. The carpet smells like the lake, you know, that rotting smell when the seaweed washes up on the sand and then the birds shit in it. That's the smell. There is a blackboard, but no, no chalk. It is dismal. Robbie and I have now spent a semester of gym standing in a corner, vaguely dribbling basketballs and talking endlessly about theater. We, perhaps naively, have pinned our hopes on the fi this fine arts program. After all, we go to a sports-focused school. Everybody loves sports, and we don't. It starts to sink in that the Anthony Henday fine arts program has been a ruse until we meet Miss Dunbar. Miss Dunbar is dressed very cool, not trying to fit in with the kids hip, generally stylish and cool. Hello everyone, welcome to Theatre Arts. My name is Pamela Dunbar. She goes to write her name on the blackboard in an official first day of school way. She realizes there is no chalk. She looks around for chalk. There is no chalk. She looks back at the board. It's spelled D-U-N-B-A-R, like, can I have some of that chocolate bar? No, because I'm done. We don't laugh. I like her, but that was a bad joke. That joke killed with my grade fours last year. Then I laugh. She's cool. I believe that honesty is the basis of every relationship. So here's what we're working with. This is the fine arts classroom. I will be teaching art, visual art, 10, 20, and 30 here in the mornings, and theater arts, 10 in the afternoons. I've never been at a school where a visual arts studio has been shared with a theater. I also have never taught theater. My degree is in education with a minor in art history. I've never taken a drama class except for Drama 104, which was a public speaking credit in my first year of university. I look at Robbie. He looks at me. Hende Hai, you have duped us. You have cheated us. This isn't a theater. This is a 1970s portable rescued from a flood, inhabited by a cool dressing, but ultimately underqualified elementary school teacher. I am acknowledged that I am not what you expected. And this classroom isn't what you expected. I know that you are aware of the facilities that the other fine arts school has to offer. And this in comparison is severely lacking. I think about the other school and their two story revolve. I believe that we have the opportunity to start something really exciting here. You all had to audition to get into this program, so I think that demonstrates great courage and great passion for theater. There is a basic curriculum for Drama 10, but it's pretty general. I'm not afraid of hard work, and I love to research. Just because I don't know a lot about theater doesn't mean I can't learn. We won't get to do a two-story revolve. I look at Robbie. She knows about the revolve. At least this year but maybe we can have something better. We have a fine arts program that is built from the ground up. We have a fine arts program where you are in charge of your own learning. We get to decide. She looks at the blackboard. There is still no chalk. She goes over to her bag and pulls out a stack of yellow post-its and a Sharpie. I know they are her personal post-its and personal Sharpie. She's using them anyway. We get to decide here and now what we want to explore this year. The other kids in the class start to nod. Robbie and I are among them. This is like the goddamn Braveheart monologue. We are fucking fired up. So let's begin. Welcome to Drama 10. What do you want to learn? Robbie puts up his hand. Um, I heard about this book from the Fame soundtrack. 
actually fame the musical, not like the movie or the television show. Actually, uh, there's this book called uh, Respect for Acting um, by by Uta Hagen. Uh, yeah, Uta Hagen. I want to read it. And also, he, he looks at me. That other one from that song, I Want to Make Magic. Oh, yeah. The magical if. Right, right. The actor must learn to use the magical if. What if? I'll Google it. She looks towards the teacher's desk. There is no computer. She grabs her phone from her bag. Constantine Stanislavski. She writes his name on a yellow post-it. She writes Uta Hagen, respect for acting, on another post-it. Books are great. I can justify purchasing books in the budget. What else? The other four kids in the class start chiming in. Miss Dunbar's steadfast determination, mixed with Robbie and my blind enthusiasm, isn't contagious. We fill the whole board with post-its. We have a class two days later, and Miss Dunbar brings six copies of Respect for Acting and six copies for an actor repairs by Konstantin Stanislavski. Six come in an Amazon package. One has a Value Village sticker on it. Another has a Goodwill price tag. Three more from the public library. The last one is from the university bookstore. We know that Hende High has not gotten these books for us. We know that Miss Dunbar has Amazon primed them with her own credit card. She has driven all over town on her own time, looking in bookshops and visiting different neighborhood libraries to collect them. She has proven in word and in deed that she is committed to building this program from the ground, brick by brick, book by Amazon primed book. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ellen. That was fantastic. Um, our next reader is Jenny Edwards. And uh, we, we missed Jenny yesterday, so I'm glad we got Jenny today. Jenny Edwards writes from Treaty 6 territory. An emeritus of McEwen University, she has published three collections of poetry and has collaborated on many artistic projects and mentorships. Most, re most recently, Jani has been working with visual artist Sydney Lancaster on Make Believe, a project centered on a five-acre homestead near the historic Victoria Trail, a dialogue that explores creating art from living trees and ideas, researching the history of the land, and thinking about the intertwined relationships of stewardship and ownership, home, naming and attentiveness. And Jani's essay is uh, shortlisted for, or is a finalist for the John White Memorial Essay Award. And Jani, are you there? Yes, I am. But we're not reading from the essay today, are we? No. Because of secret reasons, right? Right, I'll explain. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. It's been great to be here. Thank you. And thank you, Jason, for your extreme patience in trying to solve all my computer problems yesterday. It truly grace under pressure. And I'd like to acknowledge uh, fellow writers, Barbara Scott and Peter Midgley, whose craft I heard last night, and with whom I'm honored to share the shortlist for the John White Memorial Award. John White was a writer and a mountaineer and a man who truly loved this province, as do I. And some of you may know that the John White Award is for unpublished nonfiction. And... Um, I, I hope that my essay will find a good home uh, and be published eventually. And so I thought it was best 
not to read from it, to stand by the claim that, uh, uh, you know, it had not been previously published in broadcast form. And because of that, I was initially going to bow out of the finalist readings, but thankfully, Jason persuaded me to talk about the process of writing this essay and, and that that would be potentially interesting to fellow writers and um, perhaps to read something else. So here goes. Um, I've been working on this essay, Meditations on Tenderness in a Time of Plague, since the beginning of the pandemic. And, oh, goodness, what happened? Whoops, sorry. I just unmute. Um, yeah. Um, and, and even after I submitted it to the WGA, I have continued to work on it. And I reckon I'm the kind of writer who subscribes to the notion that a piece of writing is never fully finished, only abandoned. The piece is written in fragments, which um, I guess makes sense uh, because my, my primary work has been in poetry. So to go uh, into a sort of lyric fragment made sense. And I'm hoping that each fragment works as a kind of meditation on the subject of tenderness. I've been searching for the right metaphor for this form as a whole and other writer friends have suggested, well, it's a braided essay or collaged or even bricolage, which is a visual, fancy visual art term. And those metaphors do come close, but they lack the fluidity that I'm, I'm reaching for. And I think maybe the metaphor is is close to music, but I don't know enough about music forms or theory to name it. Is it a variation? Is it, I don't know. The writer Lydia Davis has a really interesting essay um, in her latest collection of prose where she explores the work of, of writers who choose to write in fragments, people like Roland Barthes and others. And she says, and I quote, I think a fragment is a text that works with silence, abbreviation, suggesting something is missing, but that has the effect of a complete experience. Lots to think about. So tenderness. When I was thinking about what to read, I realized that I have a poem um, called In Praise of Tending, uh, which I wrote over 20 years ago and was, was published in my last collection, Falling Blues. Uh, so maybe it's true that some writers and, and me in particular keep circling around our primal preoccupations. And because I'm a writer, I went back to the origins of the word. And I discovered that tenderness comes from a root that means to stretch, as in to take care of, as in to go by habit. So uh, I'd like to read in praise of tending. The way you drift to a minor key when you hum polishing the table your mother rescued from the haunted house. The way you know without thinking to bring a cutting of spider plant or wandering Jew to a friend who needs rooting. How you let the cat out, in, out again, cover small plants against the fray of wind and frost, minister to green. How you attend to blushes, stutters, quickenings that pause. Command at supper, look how light holds the willow we planted. The way we lean into the current of what we remember as sacraments. The way dust settles in its shadows like debts 
carried so long, they seem slight as ash. How we come to know, do no harm, is a kind of stretching, a tendril. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danny. That was great. Um, we're going to um, move right along to our next reader, Will Ferguson. Will Ferguson is an award-winning travel writer and novelist. He was born and raised in the teeming metropolis of Fort Vermilion, population 728 in northern Canada, close to the Arctic Circle, closer to the Arctic Circle than the American border. His debut novel, Happiness, sold in 23 languages around the world. His last novel, 419, won the Scotiabank, Scotiabank Giller Prize. His new novel, The Finder, was released in September 2020. And The Finder is a finalist for the W.O. Mitchell City of Calgary Book Prize. Will Ferguson. Hi, Jason. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of the... Uh the readers and nominees tonight, it's been wonderful. Um, as you mentioned, The Finder is, um, it traces um, a kind of a mysterious figure who's tracking down lost objects. Uh, they're all real objects out there in the world, uh, iconic objects, lost Stradivariuses, Marilyn Monroe's diary, the last reel of Alfred Hitchcock's first film, for example. And the characters in the book are all searching for lost objects themselves, personal objects that they think will make them complete. But of course, they're all um, missing something in themselves as well. And the objects are just a stand-in. I'm just going to read a scene, uh, throwing back to my own Belfast roots. For as long as I can remember, I've had a knack for finding things. It began in childhood, as most things do, amid the threadbare and doily-laden flat in Belfast that I shared with my mom, surrounded by knick-knacks and keepsakes and the stifling presence of a semi-mythical father long gone. The entire place, I realize now, was little more than a museum of the mundane, a diorama of sadness, Belfast sadness, a peculiar breed all its own, clocks that needed winding, mantles that needed dusting, ceramic figurines with rictus grins, holiday snapshots and ill-fitting frames. And yet, as narrow as that flat was, my mother still managed to mislay things. She was constantly walking in and out of rooms like a character in a play who has forgotten her lines, endlessly baffled by the turn her life has taken. Now, where on earth did I put, and quietly, Consistently, I would find it for her. Her reading glasses atop the refrigerator, her pocketbook behind the sofa cushions, memories sinking fitfully into photo albums. There were tricks involved. Memories could be nudged into place with soft spoken queries like photos in an album. Now, mom, who is this again? Oh, that's your uncle Bertie. And when, when was this photo taken? Oh, the war. Which war? Does it really matter? Yes, it does. Which war? Think, mom, think. Sometimes all that re was required was a shift in gaze, looking up instead of across, for example. Most of us slumber walk through life at eye level. A simple tilt of the head can divulge entire kingdoms. 
This was how her glasses revealed themselves atop the fridge. At other times, one had to backwalk through time, reeling in one's moments and movements until you came to the crux of where you and the object had parted company. It was like running a film in reverse, a lost reel re-spool. Sometimes locating lost objects involved entering a trance-like state, allowing one's gaze to go ever slightly out of focus, reducing the jumbled details to a mottled glow against which the lost object might pop up into the foreground. My mother always said it was no fun hiding jelly beans for me on Easter morning because instead of charging about pell-mell as other children were wont to do, I would move through thoughtfully, methodically, removing each candy one by one. What she didn't understand was that the color of the jelly beans was so at odds with their surroundings that very little searching was actually required. Although a few times I did pretend to be fooled, if only to make her feel better. She was so much more excited about Easter than I was. Ooh, you didn't think to look inside the teapot, did you? In fact, the teapot was one of the first places I spotted. It had clearly been moved. I could see at a glance that it was sitting slightly off center on its doily, all but screaming, in here, look in here. When I heard about the funeral, it was too late and too far away to make any difference. I wondered if my father showed up, not that it mattered. Perhaps that teapot sits in a secondhand emporium even now, collecting dust, waiting to be found, waiting to be rediscovered, petrified jelly beans still tucked inside. Wait long enough and everything becomes a relic. When her memory started to go, my mother would joke that one of the advantage of this slow vanishing was that she was now able to hide her own Easter eggs. Only much later did I realize that Easter was meant to be a celebration of a life restored, not a crass treasure hunt. I had always thought it was a holiday of the lost and found. I grew up in Protestant Belfast. I grew up on Shank Hill Road, which means nothing to you or everything, depending on your degree of familiarity with the niceties of Northern Ireland. The flat I was raised in is still there, but the missing house farther down must surely have been replaced by now. It's been so long since I've been home, I really can't say. I was named for a king. I was named for a king, so I was. William III on his snow white horse, a drawn sword pointing ever forward. No surrender, no surrender. Thank you. Thank you so much, Will. That was great. Um, I'm just going to do a quick reset. Uh, I want to thank everybody that's read so far. I want to thank everybody that's waiting patiently for your turn coming up. Um, just once again, just thank you for taking the time tonight to uh, to share some of your work. I know it's very difficult to 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 get uh, you know five or six minutes um, to kind of get everything you want to get out in that short amount of time. Uh, but I really appreciate it. Uh, we have people watching on. Uh, YouTube and the the chat is just blowing up all the time. The people are like loving it. Um, so I just wanted to say that um, for everybody in the Zoom that the 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 YouTube chat is very exciting. So uh, keep up the great work. Um, I will also um, let everybody know that the next uh, reader uh, couldn't be here today, but she um, 
she was nice enough to record herself uh, reading her work um, beforehand. So we're gonna try, we're gonna try a little tech thing um, that I think is gonna work. And um, but I will read her her uh, bio first, and then I will tee that up. So uh, once again, thank you everybody that's been uh, very patient and and uh, waiting to to read next. And also thank you everybody that's watching along on YouTube. I hope you're having a, a lovely evening, and we've got some more readers to go. Um, and next up is Alexandra Latos. Alexandra has considered herself a writer her entire life. In fact, she won a, a, an award when she was only five years old for her story about a dwarfened bear. As a kid, she liked climbing trees, walking to the drugstore to buy notebooks for her next story, and forcing family members and friends to act in her plays. Alex Alexandra has published young adult and new adult fiction. She's currently working on an adult novel an adult novel through a grant process with the Alberta Foundation for the Arts. She lives with her husband, two, soon to be three, I think it's probably three already, uh, tiny tornadoes and two black cats, one of whom thinks he's a dog. Um, and Alexandra in the video is gonna tell you a little bit more. Um, so my colleague Sadie is gonna be standing by to tell me if this doesn't work and um, we will give this a shot. Hi, I'm Alexandra Latos. I'm the author of Under Shifting Stars. And I want to start off by thanking the Writers Guild for allowing me to pre-record this video so I can participate in tonight's event. And also the jury for shortlisting Under Shifting Stars for the W.O. Mitchell Book Prize. Um, Under Shifting Stars is a YA book about fraternal twins, Audrey and Claire. Audrey is neurodivergent and wants to return to public school to be with Claire. But Claire doesn't want her to return because she blames her for Adam's death and wants space to explore her gender identity. The portion of the book I'll be reading is After the Cavi Flood, When the Sisters Reconcile. A superstitious person would say that I wanted this, that I asked for it months ago when I daydreamed about a wrecking ball outside my window. That's all I can think about as I lie awake in my room all night. By mid-morning, the basement has been pumped and we have the all clear to enter and check out the damage. After pulling on our rubber boots, we go down the stairs. The rugs are no longer in a path to the couch. They've migrated across the room and tangled themselves into muddy snakes on the concrete. The couch is now angled in front of the curtain that leads to Adam's room. The curtains are still shut, but entirely brown. Everything is brown. Every single item is that same awful color, like someone opened a can of shit and tossed it over everything. I swipe aside a curtain and it barely moves. It's so stiff with mud. And sewage, I think, and want to gag. Like the main room, nothing is untouched. His comforter, his books, his picture frames, his clothes. It feels so messed up to be standing in Adam's room wearing clothes I've worn in secret. Dad and Audrey come into the room seconds behind me. Dad's face is a tight drum, stark white against all the brown. He doesn't move from the doorway, but his eyes scan the room, veiny and sad. When he speaks, it's like he has to focus to say the words in their proper order. I don't even recognize it, but then I was never allowed in here anyway. None of us move. We're just staring at one another across the room, breathing in shit-filled air, and there's nothing we can do. Like when Adam died. We saw his body in that stupid box before they cremated him, and he looked so much like Adam but asleep and I kept wishing that I could just lean down and kiss his forehead and he'd wake up. We can save something, some things, Audrey says in that matter-of-fact way of hers. The stuff that can't absorb mud or water, that isn't contaminated. We can clean it off with the hose outside. I'll go grab some bags. Then she disappears and Dad sways on the spot like the breeze she created is enough to knock him over. Are you okay? I ask him. The question seems to awaken him. He walks over to a shelf and picks up a baseball trophy. I remember this. This was the very first trophy he ever got. Baseball. He could hit anything. Dad chuckles. That was part of the problem. He hit the balls he should have left, too. 
I remember, I say, even though I don't, I remember being told the story. Adam was very athletic. He picked up sports right away, but all he cared about was skateboarding. I'm waiting for that edge that always seeps into Dad's tone when he talks about skateboarding, but this time it doesn't. Instead, he says, he was really good at that too. He just got on the board and rode. Never seen anything like it. I know, I used to watch him with his friends. Dad grins over his shoulder as he picks up the next trophy. Skating at the elementary school, right? It's okay, he never lied to us about it. We never asked. Yeah, at the school. He could ride the handrail. It was scary to watch. I bet. Dad releases a sob. His drum face crumples and he puts a hand over his eyes. His whole body is shaking. I come up behind him and wrap my arms around him, my cheek against his back. We stay like that until Dad squeezes my arm, letting me know he'll be okay. It's crazy to think the water was high enough in the basement to touch objects on Adam's shelves, considering we live a few blocks from the river. But from what I've heard on the news, the cause was stormwater backup. Because of the excessive rainfall, the rivers rose, and water flowed into the stormwater pipe system and spilled back onto the streets through stormwater drains. I pick up the picture frame I looked at only a month ago, the one that made me want to reach through the glass and touch Adam's face, and wipe the mud off with my sleeve. Water has seeped between the glass and melted our faces. It's replaceable, I tell myself. Somewhere in storage is an SD card with the original photograph. In storage. My heart ricochets against my ribs. I drop the picture frame and run. When Adam was moving to the basement, Mom made us go through our bedrooms and separate items into donations for Goodwill and special keepsakes to box up and store in the furnace room. We also boxed up all the toys we don't grow and stored them with our baby items. I thought I was prepared for this, but I'm not. All I keep thinking about are Adam's baby photos and baby blanket, the matching dresses that Audrey and I liked and hated, our drawings, the toys I wanted to pass on to my kids, and all the family heirlooms to be saved for the next generation. As I shove open the door to the furnace room, my heart is in my throat and the tears are already pooling in my eyes. The skis are on their side instead of leaning against the wall. Ski and snowboard boots have migrated across the room like the couch. Boxes are no longer on shelves, they're everywhere. I blink and the tears hit my cheeks as I run between the boxes, checking for labels, which of course have floated away. The boxes themselves are soggy and most of them are destroyed, their contents strewn across the room. I recognize some shipwrecked items, including Christmas decorations and dad's tools that didn't fit in the garage. Releasing a cry of despair, I squat on the concrete floor, both hands grasping what's left of my hair. I'm going to pull the rest of it out in anguish. I can hear myself, low and guttural like an animal, and I know what's happening. My walls are all coming down. Like the water breaching the dam, I'm going to bleed all over this effing house because I finally lost everything. What are you doing? Audrey's shape appears in my vision, blurry like we're on opposite sides of an aquarium. Are you okay? She asks. No, I don't bother to stand up. I can't find it. Any of it. Can't find what? Our memories. The stuff Mom had us pack up to save. Do you mean the boxes I took upstairs? I blink. Then I'm on my feet. Oh, please, please, please let her be saying what I think she's saying. My heart is slumping in my chest, but I force myself to speak slowly so I don't freak her out. Audrey, what boxes did you take upstairs? When did you move them? The important ones, Audrey shrugs. I took them to my room when they announced the natural disaster. I wanted to be prepared. With a cheer, I rush her. I pull her into my arms and squeeze her so hard she actually winces. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You don't know how much this means. You've saved us. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Okay. I think that worked. I think it did. Um, that was great. I'm glad uh, Alexandra could do that. Um, our next reader. Oh, we have we officially have a uh, we have two bingos in a row. So with Alexandra's reading, we've now heard from everybody from the W. O. Mitchell City of Calgary Book Prize. Um, that's Alexandra 
Will, and Bertrand. And now with our next reader, we'll have our second bingo with all three finalists for the Stephen G. Stephenson uh, Poetry Award, which was Kat, Bertrand, and now our next reader, Amy LeBlanc. Amy LeBlanc is an MA student in English Literature and Creative Writing at the University of Calgary and Managing Editor at Filling Station Magazine. Amy is the author of a poetry collection called I Know Something You Don't Know from Gordon Hill Press and a novella entitled Unlocking from the University of Calgary, Pre Calgary Press, forthcoming in June 2021. Her work has appeared in Room, Prison, Prism International, and the Literary Review of Canada, among others. Amy's next chapbook, Undead Juliet at the Museum, is forthcoming with Zed Press in spring 2021. She is a recipient of the 2020 Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Emerging Artist Award. Amy, are you there? Hello, I'm here. Um, thank you so much, Jason, for the lovely introduction. Um, and thank you um, for all of the readers that came before me. Um, so excited to read more of your work um, and to hear you read more of it someday soon. Um, so I'm gonna be reading some poems from my collection. Um, depending on time, I'm gonna read five short poems and possibly one slightly longer one, but I've got my timer going. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Um, but a lot of the poems I'll be reading this evening um, are kind of based in botanical imagery. Um, and that might be because it's technically spring, but it doesn't feel like spring. Um, so kind of calling forth all of the plant imagery that I can. Um, so this first poem that I'll read is called Night Apparition. In a filigree nightgown, she stands at the edge of the water, carrying a blood flower and ladies' lace as moths nip her collar. The horses drink poisoned water with floating sides and floating specks in their eyes. She slits her lip, shifts her insides until she tastes blood. In her limp grip, the plants in her palms swell with newfangled buds. Her rib bones are lined with nectar and fastened with an ivory button. She has already learned that the instrument of poison is a hollow stomach, but milk and cured petals can hasten the spoiling along. Uh, this next poem I'll read is called Apidae. Uh, it's quite short and it's about bumblebees. The cold spans call and saliva, mothers, sisters. Thin messages cross honey and wire to bless an abdominal altar. The queen pricks her thumb with raveling spools and calls to her workers. Count your spines with barbs, insulate the hive. Mothers, daughters, for the colony to survive, they must cluster around her and shiver until spring. Uh, this next poem I'll read is the most directly botanical. It's actually called Botanica. Um, and it's a strange little poem um, that I don't have a lot of context for, but I hope you enjoy it. Foxes stand under sectioned glass, drinking tea from a thermos. They throw chestnuts, rose petals, not noticing the vines pressing into the windows, through their teeth, through clay pots and trailing in the leaves. They spread their fingers into palm tree screens, but thorns suck blood from webbed skin, pressed petal pages, Black socks tied with twine, they button linen over their mouths. Growing hothouse tomatoes, they tug at vellum corners and tear apart stitches, dissecting stem from root. Days later, one fox gets on an airplane, and despite it all, fingernails and plants continue to grow. 
Uh, this next one that I'll read is the slightly longer one. Um, it's called Girls Reading in Red Coats. Um, and this is a poem that has a bit of a historical basis to it. Um, it's a poem written for Paula Jean Weldon, um, who was a young woman who disappeared from her Vermont college campus um, in 1946 at the age of 18. Um, and she is the inspiration behind Shirley Jackson's novel, Hangs a Man, um, which is one of my favorite novels. Um, so this is Girls Reading in Red Coats. She tucked a book into the folds of her red coat when she left her room. She felt the spine against her ribs and the edges of paper wrapping around her skin. A pair of legs in a clawfoot tub, a little berth with a belly full of rocks. The book would last her the better part of three days. She buttoned a scarf to her throat and picked bloodroot and ate carrots, nine almonds a day with a glass of water. She expected to wander and to find an altar in the trees and the wasps in moist roots and the mud that caught her heels. She freed insects from jars that never held water and heard a rattling sound in her bone marrow, in her ears, eyes, hands, and teeth. They searched and searched, but she stayed hidden at her altar or the meeting point of her own sternum and her spine. She read her book in her red buttoned coat. She thought about ivy and garden walls moths that bleed cyanide, women in turtlenecks, wine and cake, and uncomfortable pantyhose. Her coat, red as pomegranate seeds, trailed behind her, moist and well-watered. Her exposed belly could cut open letters, and bloodroot was the bedrock of her spine. Her book had moistened in the rain, so she made a herbarium and slept in the vines. Stripping the moths of their poison, she dripped them over a porringer and encouraged them to dry. When her fingernails rooted to the paper, she swallowed herself whole. Uh, looks like I've got time for one more poem. Um, so I'm going to read a piece. Uh, it's a shorter poem called Intrude. The flora spreads, cracking in dark corners, tied with duct tape and well wishes, recant spells to banish compulsions. The mastication and the sweat as icicles ebb, your toenails in bed. Crooked teabag strings, opening books and bleeding, sugar packs in the snow. Eleven pregnancy tests, wired and fallow, sedentary on the linoleum. You swell full of good blood, heaves counted with a mortar and pestle. Emblematic, everything is wet. You are unwell, you can't swim, you are well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. Our next reader is uh, Harnarayan Singh. Born and raised in small town Alberta, Harnarayan Singh has risen through the broadcast ranks as a prominent media personality in Canada's favorite sport, challenging the status quo along the way. His growing list of accomplishments includes, includes broadcasting over 700 NHL games and being named a recipient of the Meritorious Service Medal by the Governor General of Canada. Harnarayan is the winner of the Brian Williams Media Award from the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame, along with an ambassadorship for the Chevrolet Good Deeds Cup. He serves on the NHL's Fan Inclusion Committee, as well as part of the Herb Carnegie Initiative, with the focus of making the sport a more welcoming place for everyone. 
Harner Ryan also serves on the board of on the board of Heroes, a char a charity which uses hockey as a mentorship tool for at-risk youth. His recent memoir, One Game at a Time: My Journey from Small Town Alberta to Hockey's Biggest Stage, became an instant best national bestseller, providing inspiration to countless others through his journey of defying the odds. Harner Ryan lives in Calgary with his wife and two young children, and uh, One Game at a Time is. Uh, a finalist for the Wilfred Eggleston Nonfiction Award. Um, Harnarayan. Thank you very much, Jason, for the kind introduction. Great to be here with uh, all of you distinguished authors. And uh, yeah, you know, my, my book is, I, I hope to provide inspiration to people who read it, uh, that no matter who you are, how you look, where you're from, we live in a country where anything is possible. And my story proves it. I was told many times that I wouldn't have a place in the hockey broadcasting world because of who I am. Um, but, uh, you know, the, in my book, I get to tell my story of my great grandfather arriving in Canada over 100 years ago, my parents arriving to Brooks, Alberta in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, it, it really puts it in perspective that decades later, uh, here I am a finalist for such a thrill and honor uh, from the Writers Guild of of Alberta. It's the same province that, you know, it was some difficult, challenging times, but same province uh, and same, uh, um, you know, same people who live in this beautiful, great province uh, who've nominated me and I'm a finalist for this award with my books. I'm really just so thrilled and honored. Great to be here. So I'm going to read an excerpt from a chapter in my book, which is called Wayne's World, and it, it kind of helps paint the picture uh, of how the seeds were planted for me to become such a big, big hockey fan. So here we go. And I'll try to try to keep it as short as I can. Chapter two, Wayne's World. I've been a hockey fan for as long as I can remember. Actually, even longer than that. The very first gift I ever received as a newborn baby in the hospital in Watasco in Alberta was a mini hockey stick from one of my cousins, Swaran Saran. It was a good-looking stick, too. It had a wooden blade and a painted white shaft, and up the side, in blue capital letters, it said Northlands Coliseum, home of the Edmonton Oilers. Even though I was an hour's drive from the Coliseum at the time and was about to settle even further south, that stick sealed my fate, and from that day on, I was a Gretzky fan. I also have to give some credit to my sister, Gurdip, who has played such an integral role in my life. As a child, she gave my parents little to worry about, and she was often playing alone quietly in Brooks while my mom took care of the house and read from the sacred scriptures of the Sikh community. But the house didn't stay quiet. Even though we were nearly eight years apart in age, we did a ton together. Whether it was epic seven-game mini hockey stick battles or games on the tabletop hockey set our eldest sister, her Jolt, bought for me, everything seemed to revolve around hockey for the two of us. Gurdip's own passion for hockey had a lot to do with the Oilers, which I guess isn't that surprising given where we grew up and the timing of it all. You have to remember the scene. It was the 1980s and, the, and hockey was on the top of every Albertan's mind. Of course, the Battle of Alberta had existed for decades before then. Some say it dates back to Edmonton being named the provincial capital despite being a smaller town, while others say it's because the first railway changed plans and ended up running through Calgary. As long as there's been an Alberta, there's been a rivalry between the two cities. 
But it's not an exaggeration or not much of one to say that the Battle of Alberta reached its fever pitch its fever pitch during the mid-1980s when the Oilers and Flames were both duking it out at the top of the NHL standings, you couldn't turn on a TV or open up a newspaper without seeing something about the rivalry. Both teams had larger-than-life players too, but even in Brooks, which is two hours southeast of Calgary, I was obsessed with the rival team up north. As a little kid, I accumulated more mini hockey sticks over the years, and they were all covered in the Oilers' patented orange and blue. I had a set of amazing Oilers pajamas too, a tiny all cotton version of an actual NHL uniform. The very first mini stick may have set the course, but you can still blame my sister Gurdip for which team in the rivalry I was cheering for as a kid. Of course, all of the great players that were involved on the Oilers in those days, there was no other player than she loved more than Wayne Gretzky. She loved the great one so much that she even had dreams about meeting him. As soon as I started watching him play, I was hooked too, and then he left. Gretzky was traded from the Oilers to the Los Angeles Kings in August 1988. The next month, I started kindergarten. Even though I was young at the time, I can still picture the trade as clear as day. Gurdip and I were in the car when the news broke, picking up our older sister Brahm from her job at the Bay. The announcement came over the radio and we drove all the way back home in silence. We were in such shock. When we got in the door, the press conference was on TV. We couldn't believe it. There was no warning. That striped shirt Gretzky wore is burned into my memory. And the way someone hands him a tissue when he tears up, that broke us even more. Neither Gurdip nor I could believe what was happening. How are you supposed to respond to something like that? But for us, it was simple. We became Kings fans because wherever Gretzky went, Gurdip and I would follow. We loved him that much. Within a couple of weeks, black and silver clothes and merchandise began replacing the blue and orange Oilers memorabilia. I have photographic proof of how quickly my loyalties shifted. If you look at my kindergarten class photo, which was taken early that fall, you'll see a sea of white kids smiling politely for the camera. Then, in the front row, there's one brown-skinned kid wearing a turban and his new L.A. King sweater with number 99 written on the back. That's me. It's kind of funny. In a small town, in a province obsessed with hockey, it was the sick kid who couldn't wait to show off his new favorite team. There was one other change in our household after Gretzky was traded. It was reported in the news that a big part of the reason Peter Pocklington, the owner of the Oilers, made the trade, which included $15 million in cash and an awful lot of money in the 1980s, was that he needed money to support his other struggling businesses, specifically the dairy company Beatrice, which he also owned. As soon as we heard that, Gurdip and I marched up to mom and told her we didn't want her to buy any Beatrice products ever again. Mom went along with it because how hard was it to buy a different brand of milk? But for us, it was a victory against the guy who betrayed us by trading away our very favorite player, number 99, the greatest of all time. From that day forward, we were a Lucerne family. Just uh, just a one minute or so left here. What did I love about Gretzky? It would be easier to ask what I didn't love about him. Not only was he the best player I'd ever seen, but he was also so gracious, so humble. He was a great ambassador for the sport without us even being aware of what that meant. As a Sikh, 
Part of what we learn in our scriptures is to be humble and respectful to those around you. Gretzky fit so many of those values that I was being taught at the Gurdwara. And he was a hockey player. He was clearly the best of the best, but he didn't walk around acting that way. From such a young age, Gretzky always carried himself with such grace. Whenever my classmates and I would argue about players in the league, I would always bring up Gretzky's humility as something nobody else had. Well, that and the dozens of NHL records he held and all the awards and the four Stanley Cups, those helped my argument too. Because Gurdip and I loved it so much, hockey was on TV in my family's house a lot when we were growing up. I've always had a good imagination. So even from around the age of five, I was dreaming up all kinds of hockey related games to play. Whenever we all sat down to watch a game, for instance, I would turn our entire living room into my personal hockey arena, and I had the whole place mapped out. The end of the room where we had our home stereo was one of the nets. The rocking chair on the opposite end was the other net. Our couch was the benches. I even had my toy cars all lined up in rows to be the parking lot outside the arena. Once the scene was set, I would then act out every part of the game, from the players to the coach and GM who had to stick around after the game to talk to the media, which I also played the role of. I would get so into my fantasy game, waving my little stick around in the air, that I would forget that there was an actual hockey game being played on the TV. My sound effects and commentary became louder and louder until finally Gurdip had to remind me to keep it down. My parents were good sports about it, though. Whenever I shoved a mini stick into my mom's hand and begged her to play goalie, she would always say yes. I ran around on that carpet so intensely that in places I wore it down to the threads, so it wasn't long before the game started to creep into the other rooms of the house. I turned our bathroom into the team's locker room. The tub itself was reserved for the general manager to talk to reporters. And we also had this stool by our home phone that became the podium for awards night, where I did my best Ron McLean impressions. So um, yeah, sports uh, has this unique power to unite. Shout out to my co-writer, who's also Albertan from Edmonton, Mike Hingston. Um, but yeah, it's just a story about defying the odds and uh, just a good Canadian story, but uh, a guy who looks a little different, but so grateful to be in the game of hockey. Thanks so much for the honor of being able to read and the honor of being a finalist for this award. Thank you so much, Harn Ryan. That was great. That was really great. Our next reader uh, is Kim Smith. Kim Smith is the New York Times bestselling illustrator of over 30 picture books, including the Builder Brothers picture book series from HarperCollins, the pop classics picture book adaptations of popular films, including Back to the Future, Home Alone, and Elf cork books and the ice chips chapter book series from harper collins canada kim's first authored and illustrated picture book box detects from hofton mifflin harcourt harper collins was released in 2020 she lives in calgary alberta and box detects is a finalist for the r ross annette children's literature uh picture book category kim smith Hi everyone, um, I'm so honored to uh, be nominated this year and uh, big, congrats, big congrats to all the uh, fellow nominees tonight. Um, so my picture book, Box of Text, is inspired by kids um, who turn ordinary things into extraordinary things. Um, so it's short, um, so I'm lucky to be able to share the whole story with you tonight. 
Meg was a box detect. She loved to make things out of boxes. She loved making tiny houses, tall towers, and twisty tunnels. And she made marvelous things no one had ever seen before. Meg was proud of her work. She can make boxes into anything. Meg's mother was proud too. She thought Meg was brilliant and creative. So Meg's mother sent Meg to maker school where she could be even more brilliant and creative. At maker school, there were blanketeers, spaghetti techs, tin foilers, and egg cartoniers. There was almost any kind of maker you can imagine. But Meg was the class's first box detect, and that made her feel special. At school, Meg learned all about box detecture. She learned how to make her structures useful, strong, and beautiful. Meg loved everything about maker school. until Simone showed up. Like, like Meg, Simone was new. She was also brilliant and creative. Worst of all, Simone was a box tech too. And she was already making things Meg had never dreamed of. In class, Simone would point out ways Meg can make her constructions a little straighter, more wind resistant, and less boring. So Meg told Simone she should build things that were less bumpy, sturdier, and much prettier. On the last day of school, the class's annual maker match was held to see who can make the most amazing thing. There was just one rule. You had to work as a team. Meg didn't want to work with anyone and neither did Simone. The blanketeers built with blankets and pillows. The spaghetti techs built with pasta and glue. The bakeologists built with cake and frosting. But the box detects were not building at all. They were arguing. I want to make a treehouse, Meg said. No, I want to make a ship, Simone insisted. Meg drew a line down the middle of a very large box. I'll take this half. You can have the other. Fine, said Simone. Soon Meg noticed that her treehouse wasn't as large as Simone's ship, so she made her side taller and more impressive. When Simone noticed that Meg's treehouse was taller than her ship, she made her side higher and more extraordinary. Slowly, Meg and Simone's creation grew bigger and bigger. They both built and built until there wasn't a single box left. And at last, they finished. What is it? asked a classmate. I've never seen anything like it, said another. The teacher said, it looks like it might. Chew, said a very small fly. Crash. Your side was too wobbly, shouted Meg. Your side was too heavy, cried Simone. Oh dear, said the judge. The maker match is not over yet, 
but most of Megan Simone's work was ruined. There were only a few parts left that could be saved. If we combine my treehouse with your ship, Meg started, we might be able to make one thing, finish Simone. The box attacks decided to call a truce so they could finish the match. Working as a team, Meg and Simone quickly joined the remaining pieces together until they had created something new. At the end of the maker match, the box of text hadn't won first place, but they had a different way of making brilliant and creative things, working together. And they each gained a new friend. What should we make next? Asked Meg. How about a buoyant bungalow, suggested Simone. Or a motorcycle mansion, said Meg. The end. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kim. That was great. I like Motorcycle Mansion. Um, we have two readers left. Thank you, everybody, for your patience tonight. And thank you, everybody, that's been watching. Um, and these, uh, this video will be up on YouTube for people who want to watch afterwards and spread it far and wide. Um, so Stephanie Tamagi is our next reader. Stephanie Tamagi is a Pushcart Prize publisher-nominated writer living in Northern Alberta. Her work has previously appeared in Other Voices, Blank Spaces, Just Words, The Avalon Literary Review, and Exile Quarterly. She is currently working on a collection of short stories and her first novel. And her short story, Fur Hat, is a finalist for the Howard O'Hagan uh, Short Story Award. So, Stephanie. Thanks so much for that introduction, uh, Jason, and congratulations to all the finalists. Um, thanks for letting me sit and listen to all your beautiful writing. Um, and thanks for hanging in with me. Um, so uh, my story for Hat is in issue 43.2 of Exile Quarterly. Um, and it's a story about two sisters and the things that help them survive. Um, so I'll just read the opening story and um, hope you guys like it. Her hat. When you live four miles from the closest town, you answer the door in winter, even if your husband is away, even if you're afraid. Cars break down everywhere, but out here, people freeze to death. And yet, some events are so strange that when you recount them, they seem made up, even to your own mind. That couldn't have happened, you tell yourself. It must have been a dream. This night, the one I didn't imagine, brought a cold that isolated everything with drifts and snowed silence. Suze and I had finished our homework and we were playing cards before dinner, the whole kitchen smelling of butter and onions. The knocks were firm, but spaced apart, hesitation evident between each one. Mom looked up from the stove to see if we'd heard it too her dark eyes reading the strangeness of the sound. She straightened her apron, pushed at her hair with the flap of her long hands and opened the door. The warm and cold met, forcing a draft into the kitchen that chilled bare skin. A man stood there. I say a man, but what we saw was tall boots, different wolves and the skin of animals. He huddled into himself with mittened fists curled towards his sternum. His face was reddened, the skin across it worn, shiny like old shoes, 
exciting in places. Ice clung to his sparse beard and frosted lashes opened slowly over eyes like polished black stones. His gaze rested briefly on mom, then the two of us sitting at the cracked kitchen table before shooting concern at the floor. Come in. Mom had a way of speaking that left no mistake. Immediate compliance was expected. The man shuffled in and stood on the doormat with his back to the wall. Mom shut the door, watched him closely. Not the kind of night anyone should be out there. She could have been speaking mostly to herself if she hadn't sounded so scolding. He shook his head as if to say no. Did you take a long turn? Were you headed to town? She didn't look outside the truck, the one she had not heard. The man shook his head again. The roundness of his chin pushed forward as he were about as if he were about to speak. But then his throat worked and caught, as if moving, moving something sharp. His eyes gleamed with unwanted wetness. It's all right. Mom's hand lifted to her waist, the palm facing down. She thought for a moment, concern between her furrowed eyebrows. Finally, the words came. I'm just serving dinner. You must be hungry. He nodded this time, exhaling. The polished stones glanced to Sue's and me, pressed up next to each other in the kitchen doorway. Sue's seven-year-old feet took big, determined steps up towards him, stopping where his bowed forehead pointed. She spoke loudly in clipped syllables. We're having fried potatoes. You'll like them, but you have to take off your boots. He bent down, stiff hands fumbling with the laces. He slipped his boots off one at a time, setting them carefully out of the way. I realized then how small he was, how his torso was made to look thick by layers of clothing and an ancient sheepskin coat. They fell from him like dead leaves. His movements were tiny, close to the body. We usually didn't listen to the radio during dinner, but mom switched it on as soon as we sat down. His fork scratched the plate and rose to his mouth. He had teeth missing and others were broken off, leaving brown, jagged verges. The man's plate was filled a second and then a third time. The food flushed his cheeks and seemed to make him taller in his chair. When he finished, he crossed the fork and knife down in the middle of the plate before mom picked it up and walked it to the sink. The man reached down into his pocket, pulling out a dented tin rectangle with burnished brass borders. His crooked hands cupped it at the ends, pushing it to his lips. The harmonica started to play along with the radio. Old country harmonies vibrated from the saliva wet metal. He didn't look at mom, just from Sue's to me and back again, the thin skin around his eyes smiling. He clapped at the end of every song, begging him to play another. It seemed a while before mom made up the couch with heavy blankets and a feather pillow and said it was time for us to get washed up. The man was gone in the morning. A coyote pelt was draped over the top of a folded pile of bedclothes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. And our final reader, last but certainly not least, is Debbie Waldman. Debbie Waldman was born and raised in Utica, New York. She has a journalism degree from Syracuse University and an MFA in creative writing from Cornell. 
She has been a newspaper reporter, university writing instructor, and visiting assistant professor. Since moving to Edmonton in 1992, she has freelanced for publications including the New York Times, the Washington Post, People, Parents, Publishers Weekly, Wired, and Sports Illustrated for Kids. She has written five children's books and co-written two parenting books. She and her husband have two young adult children who no longer live at home and a dog that does. And Debbie's piece, The Boys of Summer, is a finalist for the James H. Gray Award for Short Nonfiction, uh, along with Omar uh, Moalam, who read earlier, and Tim Bowling. Debbie, it's time. <laughs> I, I was thinking you saved the best for last, but no, it's just because my last name starts with W. So um, this is an essay that I wrote last year. Um, after the writer Roger Kahn died, he was a baseball writer and he wrote a book called The Boys of Summer. And it was the last book that my dad gave to me before he died. He died in 1974. And he gave me the book, I think, when I was 12. And I tried to read it when I was 12 and I didn't really like it. I tried to read it around the time my dad died, couldn't really get into it. And then I just never looked at it again and didn't think about reading it again until last year when Roger Kahn died. And I thought, I'm going to take one more stab and see if I can actually finish the book and see if I like it. And that was a, it was quite an eye-opening experience for me. So I'm only going to read the beginning of the essay because it's a little bit on the long side, but it was published on a website called Tablet. So you can find it there if you want to finish reading it. The morning after my father disappeared, I made a bargain with God. I promise to be a better daughter if you bring dad back. I will love all the things dad wants me to love, starting with baseball. I will finish reading that book he bought me about the Brooklyn Dodgers and you will send him home. It was March 8th, 1974. I was 13 and the book was The Boys of Summer, Roger Kahn's history of the Jackie Robinson era Brooklyn Dodgers. There was no special occasion. Buying books was something we did in our family. The year before, Dad had bought me I'm Okay, You're Okay, after I mentioned that my teacher had talked about it in school. I hadn't finished that either, but my failure to get through the boys of summer felt like the greater offense. I had no real affinity for baseball, didn't understand the nuances, and quite frankly, wasn't interested enough to learn. Still, I couldn't blame Dad for thinking otherwise. Unlike my older sister, who shared his interest in sophisticated music and obscure philosophers, I had an impressive baseball card collection. It wasn't dad's fault he didn't know the cards were intended primarily as a device to get boys to pay attention to me. No doubt he also thought I liked baseball because I was the one person in the family who would play catch with him. He tapped me on the shoulder and we'd head out to the front yard tossing the ball back and forth, him coaching me, me reveling in the rare opportunity to engage in an athletic activity without fear of being mocked. Gym class had been a source of anxiety for me since third grade when my teacher singled me out and denounced me as uncoordinated. What did she know? I was my father's throwing partner and my father knew more about baseball than she did, more than anyone in Utica, New York. He'd grown up in Boston, shagging balls at Fenway Park, whatever that meant. The only shag I knew was carpet, like the carpet in the horrible apartment we moved into after God failed to keep his end of the bargain and dad's body turned up in a lake in the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains nearly seven weeks after he went missing. His car had been found there the day after he disappeared. The keys in the ignition, his wallet on the passenger seat. 
dad was a rabbi, a prominent member of the community. Rumors flew. Was it murder? The mafia? Suicide? Mom and the coroner said it was an accident. We could have kept living in the house where dad and I used to play catch. The temple owned it. The board offered to sell it to us. Mom said no. There are too many memories here, was the excuse she gave to my sister and me. That made even less sense to me than shagging a ball. I did not have nearly enough memories, but I knew better than to ask for an explanation. Mom was generous with comforting hugs, but stingy with information. Questions, even as innocent as, how many memories are too many? Or what does that mean, shagging a ball? Risked triggering her temper, which had worsened considerably in the weeks when dad was missing and didn't improve after his body was found. In the new apartment with the green shag carpet, which made the place look as if it needed to be mowed, we did not explore the mystery of dad's death. When we talked about him, it was to remember how wonderful he had been, how he made us laugh, how lucky we had been to have him in our lives. All true, but not terribly useful for a confused, grieving adolescent. I was in my early 20s before I began parsing out the truth, before I discovered that there was a history of mental illness in dad's family, that he had been sleep deprived and depressed for months before he died. The following passage from the Suicide Index sums up the multiple losses that many of us survivors feel. In this particular section, my understanding is that the U serves two functions. It is generic, and it is also directed at author Joan Wickersham's father, who killed himself when she was in her early 30s. When you kill yourself, you're killing every memory everyone has of you. You're taking yourself away permanently and removing all traces that you were ever here in the first place, wiping away every fingerprint you ever left on anything. You're saying, I'm gone, and you can't even be sure who it is that's gone because you never knew me. Wickersham had known her father as an adult, but his death sent her on a mission to get to know him all over again, to uncover what she had missed. I never had the gift of knowing my father as an adult. After I learned the truth about how he died, I met him secondhand by reading newspaper articles and the hundreds of condolence cards people had sent while he was missing and after his body was found. I met him by interviewing family and friends and by scouring the notes he'd made in books he'd owned about depression and sleep deprivation. I looked at photographs. I read his college papers. Some of my findings reinforced what I already knew. He was funny, loyal, honest, generous, and gifted at impressions. Some made me wince with recognition. Neither of us had been very good spellers in college and he was prone to the kind of debilitating self-doubt that often plagues me. I didn't give myself a deadline for my investigation, but a few years later, I was ready to call it quits. I'd collected a lot of details and no matter how I combined them, they didn't add up to what I had been searching for. No amount of effort ever would, though I hadn't realized that when I started my search. The most profound discovery I made was that I would never know my father the way I wanted to. I wanted to have grown up with him, to have him die the way people are supposed to, of old age. Um, that's my five minutes. So if you want to hear the rest of it and what I discovered in the book, you can go look at the essay on Tablet, the website. Thanks. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thanks. Um, thank you, everyone, uh, for watching tonight. Thank you, everybody. Uh, for for being so generous with your time to uh, spend tonight to to share your words with us, and I'm going to put on the gallery view if people wanna if people wanna say hello and goodbye. Um, just can't thank you enough. 
Um, and, and once again, congratulations to every one of you on, uh, on your achievement this year and um, best of luck, best of luck in the awards and best of luck uh, with everything else that's to come with, uh, with these books and your next works and everything else. Um, it really has been so lovely to hear you all read tonight. And uh, I know YouTube appreciates it as well. And um, so thank you very much. Uh, my name is Jason. I work with the Writers Guild of Alberta. And um, thanks again for watching. Uh, everybody, please stay safe and wear a mask and uh, get the shot when it's your turn and uh, all of that other stuff. So thank you very much. <laughs>